Hey, good morning. Can we get the lights on here? I'd like to be able to see you for when, I, when we get to the moment of guilt, then I can look you directly in the <laughs> eye, make you feel extra uncomfortable. A um, couple things before I dive in today. Uh, if there are any kids in here, I would encourage you to maybe have them go to the Table Kids. Uh, today's sermon is probably rated PG-13, slipping into an R-rated sermon. So um, all I'm doing is telling a Bible story, but it is jacked up. Anyway, um, seriously, uh, I told my wife this story, and she's like, no one ever told me that story from the Bible. Um, a couple of things. Uh, we, have a, we have an email address, feedback at thetabledc.org. Um, if you have uh, questions or comments uh, that you want to offer the leadership team at the table, that's a great way to, to kind of give that feedback. You're always welcome to get coffee with us and to, to ask questions or share, but sometimes it's just easier or quicker when you're sitting in the middle of service, you have something pop in your head. Uh, just feedback at thetabledc.org, and then we take those to the leadership team once a month when we meet, um, and we can provide an answer. Sometimes we'll shoot you an email quicker if we have an immediate answer, but maybe you have, you know, you're like, you know, the way that you do greeting makes me feel completely awkward. Uh, and if we get like five emails that, like that, we'll then say, oh, maybe we should think about that. So anyway, it's a way for you to feedback um, without taking a lot of time out of your day to get coffee. The other thing is I'd really encourage you, if you are new to the table, uh, to join me uh, after service. Uh, we're going to do this quick class, um, eat some pizza, where you can find out a bit more about how the table's structured, how we came to be. I'll share our story. Um, so that's going to be in the, um, in the conference room. Uh, I think that's all my my early things that I wanted to say. Uh, thanks for being here on the, t it's like crazy cold outside and the time change. I thought it was going to be me and Richard here today, but a couple of other people showed up. Uh, let's pray and then we'll dive in. Hey God, I thank you for, I thank you for everyone in this room. I thank you for the, their desire to know more about you. Um, I pray that you would um, continue to more fully reveal yourself to us, um, especially as we walk through this season of Lent. Help us to discover you in the ordinary and the everyday. Amen. We're in the middle of a series called The Year of Biblical Literacy, and we've just spent the past six weeks looking at the meta story of God. Um, really, I want you to get an overview of all of Scripture. But now we're going to um, come back down a little bit and uh, dive into a specific area of the Old Testament. Now, during the year of biblical literacy, we are not going to go through like Genesis to Revelation, go verse by verse. Um, and, but, I, but I want you to get a, a feel, a sense for how some of these texts function. And so we're going to spend three weeks in the book of Judges, partially because we often don't hear s uh, sermons on the book of Judges. And I think uh, there is a message and a story in Judges. Uh, there are a number of messages and stories that are really relevant for our time. And so today we're going to look in the book of Judges. So if you want to go ahead and flip there, we're going to start actually at the end of Judges and Judges 19. But just to give you a, a quick backdrop of where Judges is. So, so we have creation and then Abraham. Abraham calls, uh, God calls Abraham, tells him he's going to through him, there's going to be a great nation. 
all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. Then uh, there is 400 years of slavery where Israel finds themselves as slaves in the land of Egypt. Then God miraculously frees them from Egypt um, and, and leads them into the desert. But because of their own brokenness, they wander around in the desert for 40 years. And, and the books of the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, essentially end, conclude with um, with Israel on the verge of going into the promised land. So God has promised them that they are going to be a great nation. And, and part of that promise is that they will have a land, a land to call their own. And so at the end of, this, at the, end of the, the law, they are on the verge of going into the land. Finally, Joshua leads them into the land. And now they have their own piece of land to call their own, their own home. And so from the time they enter the land, from when Joshua enters them and enters into the land to the time of King David, um, who more of us know the story of like King David, King Saul, King David, King Solomon, there's about a 330-year gap known as the period of the judges. There is no king in the land. There's no king. The, the idea is that God is the king for Israel. In, in the, uh, with, Moses, he has, with Moses and the law, he provided a framework for what it meant to be the people of God, the love of God and love of neighbor. Right? The Ten Commandments kind of is the framework. You, you, should, you should have no other gods before you, and you should love and treat your neighbors well. Right? God gives them a framework for how they are to live, so there's no need for, for a king. And so during this period, this 330-year period, there's no king in, in, there's no king in this land, but there are 12 tribes. There's the 12 tribes of Israel. And if we remember, um, the 12 tribes uh, of Israel uh, are, are, the, um, are, the, are the, the names come from the 12. Um, so there, you know, there's Abraham who had the son Isaac, and Isaac had a son Jacob. The 12 tribes are Jacob's sons. Um, and so that's kind of just a little backdrop. And each of these tribes is essentially its own state is that that's probably like the, the, the best equivalent that I have each tribe is, is its own state um, it has its own army national guard I don't know what the equivalent would be but anyway they've got their own military uh, and that's kind of where we are when we pick up the book of judges so they are in the land but but all throughout the all throughout this period this 330 years there's this there is this uh, cycle that goes like this Israel is disobedient to the calling that God has placed on their lives. Israel's disobedient to the calling that God has placed on their lives. And then what happens when they're disobedient, there is disaster. Like they are experts in, in screwing things up. So there's, there's disobedience, they screw things up, and when that happens, they say, oh, we, we are so sorry, God, would you please deliver us? And, and it's this constant like cycle. Of, of, of disobedience, disaster, and deliverance. Disobedience, disaster, and deliverance. It's kind of like in college when you, when you had a bit too much to drink and, and the next morning you promise God that if he helps you live to the next day, you will never have another drop to drink the rest of your life. And then two weeks later, you kind of forget about this promise, right? Or whatever it might be, in your life, you've had these moments. You, you kind of understand. You promise you will never do this thing again. If you can just get me out of this situation, I am in this bind. It's my fault. I get it. I'm wrong. But God, look, you deliver me, I will, I will, I will move overseas. I will be a missionary. Just help me get out of this situation. <laughs> And then like three weeks later, you totally forgot um, about the promise you made to God. So that's, that's the situation that is the backdrop 
um, to this story. And it's something I think that we all have in common. And so over and over again, the book of Judges is about a nation for 330 years that gets in trouble, gets delivered, gets in trouble, gets delivered, gets in trouble, gets delivered. You get the point. And ultimately, what this story is trying to do, the story that we're going to talk about today, the story is trying to do is reflect what happens when a group of people spiral out of control. Right? The authors of the Bible were putting together these stories and reminding us, the, reminding us of these stories for a purpose. And the reason I think we need to hear the story is because some of the ways that Israel thinks about who they are is similar to how we think about who we are. So, here's the story I want to tell you today. So there once upon a time was a Levite, and the, Levite was one of the, the Levites were one of the 12 tribes of Israel. They were the religious tribe. Um, all the priests came out of the nation of, or out of the tribe of Levi, the Levites. And um, there was this Levite, and he was from the uh, area called Ephraim. And uh, this Levite had a concubine. And I was trying to, dis- to figure out how I could describe a concubine because the text seems to struggle with how to describe a concubine. So concubines were not something that Israel traditionally had, but was something that the Canaanites had, um, and now Israel was occupying the land previously owned by the Canaanites, and some of the Canaanites' practices and customs have stuck around. A concubine is somewhere between a girlfriend and a sex slave, right? It, it is, it is, it, it is uh, they are property of the person, but they in some ways are in some sort of relationship with this person. So it's, it's, it's really weird, and, and that's all I'm going to say about it, right? So think of it like a, a girlfriend who can't leave. Um, <laughs> the problem is, the problem is, and, and this concubine, um, this concubine is from, the, is from Bethlehem of Judea, and the problem is, is, is that the problem is that she's unfaithful and actually does end up leaving. She's unfaithful, and she, because of her unfaithfulness, goes back to live with her parents in Bethlehem of Judea. And we don't know the whole story, but for whatever reason, this Levite um, from Ephraim, he finally decides, you know what, I'm lonely, I, I don't know what it is. For about four months later, he decides, I'm going to go back and get my concubine. So he travels to, this, to, he travels to, um, to, to Bethlehem, where her family is from, and he travels to the land of the tribe of Benjamin. He travels to the land of the tribe of Benjamin, and he finally gets to this, this woman's hometown and, and arrives at her house, and, and the text actually says her father is, this is why it gets a little weird, her father is excited to see him, um, and uh, his dad's excited, to, or her dad's excited to see him, and the, and the scripture translates it that it was the Levite's father-in-law, which is why concubines are really kind of complicated because if it's, yeah, how it becomes the father-in-law, I'm not quite sure, but this is not the point of the sermon, but I just figured you should know this. You should read this story. It's in Judges 19 through 21. So the father-in-law's there, and he's happy, and he's like, dude, we should party. And so for like three or four days, the Levite and the, uh, the concubine's family party. They eat, drink, and be merry. Finally, the Levite's like, hey, I need to get going. I need to go home. And the father-in-law's, oh, says, wait, stay just one more day. You're a bit hungover. We'll have some coffee in the morning, and then you can leave. And he's like, okay. But then they end up drinking a lot that night. And so then it's like noon before he's recovered. And the, 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 her father is like, well, hey, why don't you just stay another day? 
you can, we'll drink some more coffee and you can leave early in the morning. But then the problem is, is that night they end up drinking a lot again. And this goes on for like three or four days. And so finally the Levite's like, I really have to go. But because the night before he had again had a little too much to drink, um, it's about noon or later before he gets on the road. And so he is heading out way later than he expected and begins traveling to go home to Ephraim. Well, on the journey, uh, it's beginning to be nightfall and it's not safe to travel at night. So the night begins to fall. And and so there is a land they pass by. It's I'm trying to think of the exact name. It's just, it's the, where the Jesuits are from, but I can't remember the exact name of the land. Anyway, they pass by where the Jesuits are from, but the Jesuits are not Israelites. And so the servant who was traveling with this Levite, he said, we should stop where the, in the land of the Jesuits. They'll, they'll provide hospitality, let, have us, give us a place to stay. And, and the Levite's like, no way, they are not like us. I am not going to stay in the land with those people. So they continue on until they get to, um, until they get to um, the Gibeah, which is where the Benjaminites live. So they arrive in Gibeah, where the Benjaminites live. And what you would do in these days is there was no like hotwire.com or Priceline. Uh, in fact, there was no hotels. And so you would show up at the town square where the well was. You'd show up at the town square and you'd kind of hang out looking pathetic until someone would come and say, hey, you should come and hang out at my house this evening and stay with me. In fact, it was part of the laws of hospitality that was part of Israel's tradition that when a stranger was in your land, you would open your house to them and give them hospitality. But if you've ever seen a horror movie and, you know, you roll into town and there's, and, and not, and there's just something that's not right, that's what happens when he rolls into uh, a, Gibeah, right? When he goes into Gibeah, like, he's getting, something is weird. Nobody's at the town square to welcome them. No one's welcoming him to come home. And finally, this guy, another guy who lives in Gibeah, who's from Ephraim, he sees the Levite and his uh, crew that are there, the concubine and the servant and the two donkeys that are traveling with him. It's really fascinating, like, this, the, the detail Scripture gives at time, times. So anyway, th- this, uh, this guy comes and says, hey, you should come spend the night with me. And so he, he takes the Levite and his, his crew to his home to, to sleep for the night, and they get there, and they have dinner, and all of a sudden, they start to hear pounding on the door. And, and they go to the door, and it is the townspeople of Gibeah, and they're like, what the crap is going on? Do you have a foreigner in your house? Why did you give hospitality to this person? Do you have a foreigner in the house? And so here's where I want to pick up. The Gibeonites surrounded the house, and if we, uh, Judges 19.22, we read this. Bring out the man who came to your house so that we can have sex with this man. Now, this was not sex about um, gratification. This was sex about humiliation. The idea was, and this is actually picked up by the Greeks and the Romans later, but that we will so humiliate this Levite that he will go tell everyone, you need to avoid the town of Gibeah because they are not hospitable. So strangers, foreigners, aliens, stay out of this place because you are not welcome. But the man who had shown him hospitality says, no, you can't do this thing. This is wrong. We have laws about this. We are a hospitable people. We don't treat strangers like this. And he said, no, my friends, don't be so vile since this man is my guest. 
Now that he's in my house, I am responsible for him. I am his protector. He is under my room, roof. This is, man is my guest. Don't do this outrageous thing to him. And the man, the, the man who has shown hospitality, he is pulling on the history and the tradition of Israel that when there is a foreigner and a stranger and an alien in the land, you are to offer them hospitality. And so he said, I have a responsibility to offer this person hospitality. And then from this point on, I just got to tell you, the story gets stranger and stranger and stranger. So then this man, who at this point in the story is the hero, I, I am cheering for the guy who, who offered hospitality. But then the same guy who was just the hero says this, hey, look, here's my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out so you can do whatever you, so you can use them and do whatever you wish. Maybe he's not the hero of the story after all. But the men would not listen. So the man, the Le- this is the Levite, took his concubine and sent her outside to them. And what happens next is so horrible and so like over the top that I'm, just, I'm not even going to read it. You can go read it on your own later if you want. It's horrible. The next morning, the Levite wakes up. He opens the door and on the doorstep, or he wakes up and he sees his concubine laying there and he says, get up, let's go. But she was dead. And so he takes her and he puts her on his donkey and he heads home. And when he gets to Ephraim, he's furious. How dare these people do this to the concubine? And so he says, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to write a letter to all the tribes of Israel, all 11 tribes of Israel, and I'm going to tell them how angry I am and how bad the tribe of Benjamin is. And then he rethinks it, and he's like, you know what, no one's going to listen, so I know what I'm going to do. I have to get everyone's attention. So he, he chops the concubine into 11 pieces, and then he attaches a piece of her to the letter. And so he sends out this letter. And so you can imagine the next day, like the mayor of the town gets the mail. He opens up the mail and there's this letter along with a hand or an arm or a leg. And in the letter, he tells the story of what the men of Benjamin or of Gibeah have done. And there is outrage. They're like, I cannot believe a tribe of Israel would do this, would treat someone this poorly. I cannot believe such a thing could happen. We, we must do something. And so they, all the tribes of Israel, they rush to this town of Gibeah. They go to the town of Gibeah. I mean, there's a lot more to the story. They're going back and forth. How do we handle this? Finally, they go to the tribe of Gibeah. We read in Judges 20, uh, verse 1, Then all of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba and the, la- uh, and the land of Gilead, came together as one, and they assembled before the Lord in Mizpah. And so they all, they all gathered together and said, something must be done about this. And then they travel to the land of, of, of Gibeah and they say, look, here's the deal. Give us the perpetrators of this terrible crime and we will deal with them and we will leave the rest of you alone. And Gibeah and the Benjaminites are like, no, back off, they're ours. Like, you don't mess with people from our country. Like, those are our people. Don't you dare. And, and so... What happens next is that all the tribes come together, the other 11 tribes come together, and they decide to take justice into their own hands. And they, they attack the, the tribe of Benjamin. And over the next two days, we're, the scriptures tell us that tens of thousands of people are slaughtered. 
and they still don't overcome the Benjamites. So that the tribes of Israel have literally lost tens of thousands of people. And so they are furious. There is bloodlust. Like they want the Benjaminites to pay. Right? The Benjaminites are one of the 12 tribes of Israel, they, but they want them to pay. And so what they do, and, it, and we read about this in rather graphic detail in, in the text, is that they go into the land and they slaughter everyone. Men, women, children, babies, animals. They destroy everything and they burn the city. And then, and then at the end, there's this moment, actually, it's, 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 if it wasn't so sad, it would be hilarious. They say, God, how did you allow one of the tribes of Israel to get wiped out? Right? How did you let this happen? You're like, no, you, you did this, which is really fascinating. Like the way, the way they view God to this story is really fascinating. And at the end, they almost blame it on God. Like, how did you let this happen? Because it's, everybody knows there are 12 tribes of Israel. Now there are 11 because we just committed genocide. God, how did you let this happen? And then they remember, then they remember that 600 men had escaped from 600 Benjaminites had escaped to the desert during the fighting and they were hanging out in the desert and they're like, oh, good, 600 of them are still left. But one of the things I skipped over was that they, before they attacked the city, they had made a promise, they had made a promise that none of their children would be allowed to marry a Benjaminite and none of them would be allowed to, to have children with the Benjaminites. And so they've got 600 people hanging out in the desert, but then they remember it's 600 men, so you can't keep the tribe going. And so then they're like, crap, what do we do? This story gets weirder and weirder. And so then they say, did anyone not send a representative to this battle? Like, did any town not send someone here to enact justice on the Benjaminites? And they're like, yeah, I don't think there's anyone from Jabesh of Gilead. They're like, oh, it's going down. And so then all these angry Israelites, they go to Jabesh of Gilead, and the text tells us that they slaughtered everyone, men, women, and children. Well, they slaughtered men and women. Uh, it doesn't tell us exactly what happens to the kids. But only people they saved, the text tells us, is they save 400 virgins. Now we've got 400 wives for the 600 Benjaminites. Problem is, the problem is, is that you're still short 200 people. This is, this is such a jacked up story. So they're still short 200 women. And so what, but they've made this promise, this pledge to God that they, none of them are going to marry, let their daughters marry a Benjaminite. So then they come up with this plan. You know what? The spring festival is coming. And in the spring festival, all the women, all the young virgins are gonna go dance in the field. So here's what we're gonna do. The Benjaminites can hide in the bushes and we'll tell them where to be. They can hide in the bushes and then when the festival happens, they can come and kidnap our daughters. And then it's really not our fault because we kept their promise. We can't help it that these depraved people kidnapped our daughters. Then they'll have enough wives for everyone. And then Judges ends. There's no hero there's no redemption. There's nothing. There is just darkness. And the book of Judges ends. It has one line, though, that comes at the very end of the passage. 
And Judges ends with these words. In those days, there was no king in Israel. In those days, there was no king. There was no one to give moral authority, no one to give guidance to who they were because it was the idea was that God was their king and would show them the way to live, but they had turned their back on God, and so there was no one to give them moral direction. And so in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what they thought to be right. There was no king in Israel. In fact, this is a refrain throughout the book of Judges. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what they thought to be right. Israel, a country with so much promise, had spiraled out of control. And what's fascinating is the entire way down, if we were to go back and retell this story and stop at each part, everyone thought that they were doing what was right. Everyone thought they were doing the right thing. Like the guy who showed hospitality, he felt that offering up women to, these, to, the, to the angry crowd instead of the Levite was the right thing to do because, well, they're just property. And, and then the Levite, he feels it's the right thing to do to offer up his concubine because it's saving himself and he clearly is worth more. And then the people who are so angry and wipe out the tribe of Benjamin, they think they're doing what's right because they are avenging a wrong. And all throughout the story, if we were to retell the story, Every single person felt as if they made the right decision. This story, it spirals out of control. And, 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 as, I, and as I read this and as I, as I heard the story, I still remember the first time that I heard someone actually talk about this passage and the refrain that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I couldn't help but think about our own moral framework to some extent. I've been reading a book um, I've been reading a number of books. I mean, so you, there's a book by Alistair McIntyre called After Virtue and, a, and another one on kind of the, uh, uh, by a Christian Smith who's a sociologist at Notre Dame talking about moral frameworks, particularly for millennials. And they did interviews with, with young, young people and they said, so how do you know what is right or wrong? And, and they said one of the challenges was that there is no cohesive moral framework for people to make decisions. And, and the American moral framework is something like this. And this is what, as Christian Smith was interviewing young people, he kept hearing something like this. Two things. One is, well, I know what's right or wrong for me, but I, you know, I don't really know how I know what's right or I just know that this is wrong for me. And then, and then the other framework that kind of undergirds everything is this, is that, that we, do, we have the freedom to do what we want, when we want, with who we want, as long as nobody gets hurt. We value our autonomy. The ultimate cultural sin, the ultimate cultural sin is to try to tell somebody else how to live. Right? If you were to try to impose your morality on another person, to try to tell them how to live, and I'm not making like, if you're nervous, like I'm not making a case that we're, this is what we should do. I'm heading someplace else. But like the ultimate cultural sin is like to tell someone else how to live. Like you do that, you are going to get trolled on Twitter, right? <laughs> but, but what I need you to hear is I don't, uh, th- this is a problem, like a cohesive moral framework and a fabric and how we make decisions and decides what is right and wrong as a culture. Because undergirding all this is kind of the, this is modern classical liberalism, which, you know, we can do what we want, when we want, with who we want, as long as we have 
everyone has their own autonomy. And this is based on the idea that we are ra rational and logical beings and can make these decisions, right? This is getting a bit philosophical. The problem happens is now we're kind of wondering, are, is everyone actually rational and logical? And how do we actually know what is right or wrong? And how do we make these determinations? Why does it matter if anyone else gets hurt? But anyway, that's not where we're going. What I want us to hear is that there's a little bit of this in, in all of us. There's a little bit of this in me. I don't want anyone telling me how to live or how to, how to, how I should go about living my life. I still remember the an embarrassing fight that my wife and I got into when we first got married and were going to seminary. And um, there was this incredible area of town near where we where we were going to go to school. And there was a high rise in this beautiful apartment that was way more than we should pay. And my wife, who's very logical and smart, said, Kevin, that's way more than we should pay. It's not wise. We should go live in these really crappy apartments on the other side of town. And I still remember, I essentially stomped my foot and said something like, I've always worked hard and gotten what I want. Right? How dare you try to get in my way? And then she's like, well, that was before you met me. And... Um, <laughs> Okay, but th this is not, this is not, so there is part of this in all of us. There's part of this in all of us. And, and a problem, and I'm just going to, for a second more, talk more about broader cultural frameworks. Right? The problem is, is that now the only thing we have to hold us in check is the law, right? Is the law to hold us in check? And, and the problem is that that often bends in favor of the people who can afford the best legal representation. This is why the big banks bother us so much, is because it seemed that tails they, they won and heads they won, right? It, it, they, they ended up winning one way or the other, and it just there's something inside of us instinctively that feels that something is wrong. And the other thing, in a, in a culture where everyone can do what they want, when they want, with who they want, as long as nobody gets hurt, for some reason, it, someone always ends up getting hurt, and it often ends up being historically, it ends up being women who, get the, 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 who end up getting mistreated. Right? This is why all throughout the world, women have to fight for their rights, because men and people in power tend to come out on top in a world where the, this is kind of the framework. And, and the story of Israel, this is all leading somewhere. In the story of Israel, God wants to be Israel's king, but they want to live by their own rules and do what's right in their own eyes. And in our story, God wants to be our king, but we want to live in our own way. Right? This, is the whole, this is why the whole New Testament uses the framework of the kingdom of God. The idea is that God is our king, provides a framework for how we live. And we're not going to solve society's problems. Right? We, we have way more than enough just to fix ours. But what I want you to hear this morning, if you are one of the people who's like, don't you dare try to, to tell me that I should be more loving or more gracious or live in this way or that way or whatever. I will do what I want when I want. As long as no one gets hurt. What I want you to know is that when you just do what you want and when you want, someone eventually gets hurt. Right? You end up hurting yourself. You end up hurting the people around you. You hurt the people, and this is something that I'm just beginning to think about as I have a child, but I'm hurting the people that come behind me. Right? When I live life just for my own selfish desires, right? the things I want, the car that I want, the, the, whatever the thing is, whatever it is that I'm living for, when I live my life simply for myself, I, what, what am I doing to the people who come behind me? 
The choices in your life actually impact other people. Now, I, I don't want to be the one to break it to you, but some of you are a bit odd. Like, you're, you're just, a, some of you are a bit dysfunctional. You do weird things. You say weird things. Me too, right? People are like, why do you pronounce things that way? Or why do you react the way, that way in these situations? Like, when you get angry, you tend to do this. I don't know. It's what my dad did. Right? The, 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 the people that we grew up around, they, they, impact, they impact us. And if I were to sit down and, with you and we talk about some of the things, that, the things that actually bother you, like why do I act and behave in this particular way? I mean, you probably end up telling me a story like, well, you know what? When I was young, my dad ran off and I've always had issues trusting or whatever it might be. I, I was listening to a guy the other day. He said he grew up uh, in, a, in a very Christian home for 25 years, right, he, they went to church every Sunday. His father was his hero. And then one day, his dad just ran off with someone that he met. And he said he remembers sitting down his father and saying, how could you do this? And his father replied, well, don't you want me to be happy? And, and he said this, it threw his whole entire world upside down because now he didn't know how to process anything any longer and, and is actually a fascinating book finding god in the waves where he kind of this guy named mike hargrove um uh, kind of explains find walking back to god after the situation and some and some of you are doing the exact same things that your family did or that your grandparents did or maybe even your great-grandparents you're living your life by your own rules and for some of you, faith has always seemed to be a burden. Because, to be honest, you grew up in churches that put a ridiculous amount of judgment on top of you. Everything was wrong, and the only thing you knew is that the most unhappy people were the ones who seemed to be following, living under the rule of God. The only thing you were pretty sure about is that the one constant in life is that God didn't want you to be happy. But what Jesus says is, my, my burden is, my yoke is light. I have come that you may have life abundantly. This is what the whole gospel is about, that there is a new and a better way to live, right? What is the fruits of the Spirit? When you are living into the calling, when God is your king, when you are following the way of Jesus, this is what your life will look like by the power of the Spirit. It is the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness. This is what it means to, for God to be our king, is to live in the way of Jesus, but it means to give up some of our own desires and to sacrifice some of our own wants and the things that we need and to live for others in the way that Jesus did. So that today, I, I, wanted us to, I wanted us to hear this weird story because I think partially we sometimes gloss over the weird stuff in the Hebrew scriptures and we make it to be what it's not. If you were to go and read the story, right, you, would, uh, you, you should read the story, but there, there's so much, there is so much that is disturbing there that we sometimes make what, about what it's not. Right? What the author is trying to do is show this is what happens, this is the end of what happens when you live for yourself. And so here's my invitation. In a world of moral ambiguity where people are hungry for, our, for a story to give their life meaning, I want you to know that you are serving a king. You are serving something. It is either your ambition, it is power, it is money, 
You are serving, the past is your family of origin. I don't know what it is that drives and pulls you into the future, but you are serving something. And so today, if, I want to invite you, and, and if you've been around the table long, like we're not a, we tread, we don't do a ton of altar calls, right? Saying, you know, you need to come down and kneel and confess all your sins and do, that, that's really like, but today I want to invite you that some of you are, you've spent your entire life living for yourself. And, and your life is beginning to spiral. And I want to invite you, if you have not decided to follow the way of Jesus, that this morning, in this moment, in this place, that you can choose to live a different story, that you can choose to follow a different path. I want to invite you on the way of Jesus, to invite Jesus to become the king, the ruler. These are weird words. Like, even coming out of my mouth, it's weird to think of someone being the king and the ruler. But Jesus wants to provide you a new way to live. And I'd invite you, if if you've been living your life for yourself, that this is a moment where you can choose to follow the way of Jesus. And for some of you, you can restart your family's story in this moment. Let's pray.